Anyways, good morning to each and every one of you, and uh, thank you for being part of uh, Summit Drive Church. And it's so fun to watch the church in action. You know, some things are organized, and some things just happen spontaneously, which is really fun. We have an elderly lady in our church who said, you know, the Lord has told me I need to come and plant plants in the garden. And, and she's not even well. Her health is not good, and so she needed a little extra help. But that garden's been planted out there. And it's just so nice when you approach the building and there's flowers and there's color. So I just thank the Lord for speaking to people and impressing on their hearts what they need to do to enrich the, the body of Christ. Well, this morning I would like to uh, focus on the last five verses of Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. And if you don't have a Bible with you here this morning, I would just encourage you to open up your bulletin, find the handout, and you'll find today's passage written on there, along with a handout and uh, uh, that will give you a little bit of an outline so you'll know where I'm going here this morning. And as well, there's study questions for our life groups or for one's personal study on the other. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 to 50, we read this interesting scene this kind of really interesting scene from the life of Christ. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now the passage begins with these words. While Jesus was still talking to the crowds. Now as we've been working through Matthew's gospel, I think it's probably occurred to many of you that Jesus often attracted a crowd. In fact, the word crowd or crowds is found 26 times in Matthew's gospel. Crowds followed him from town to town. And on several occasions, he attracted really big crowds. On one occasion, 4,000 men. On another occasion, 5,000 men. And that's not including the women and children that were there as well. Yes, Jesus really had the ability to attract a crowd. And I think most of you understand why he attracted a crowd. Let me give you three reasons. I think you know all these. First of all, he was such an incredible teacher. If you heard him once, you wanted to hear him again. He taught with such authority. And probably some of you can relate when you went through school or university. You had that one or two teachers that just stood out to you. You just couldn't wait to hear them again because they, they really knew their topic. And that was so true of Jesus. And in fact, he opened up the Old Testament scriptures for people, and they were understanding them in a fresh way, and they just couldn't wait to hear him again. Not to mention that he also freed a lot of people from man-made religious rules. And I think that's timeless. In every century, we got to get rid of some of the man-made religious rules and focus on what really the gospel and the word of God is saying. Secondly, he healed people. He healed people. 
Could you imagine what it would have been like if you're one of in, in one of his gatherings and you'd taken a friend along who was maybe lame from birth and all of a sudden they were running away from the scene just, just so excited about being healed? And in addition to that, he delivered people who were possessed by evil spirits. Again, to see the transformation in people must have been so exciting to watch. You know, I'm sure the crowds were saying to one another, what's he going to do tomorrow? And they just wanted to follow him the next day to see what he would do next. Anyways, because of these wonderful things that Jesus was doing, he often attracted a crowd. And in the passage before us this morning, Jesus had once again an attracted in a crowd. He was speaking to him, and the crowd was so big that it kept his mother and brother, well, it kept them standing outside, and they were wanting to speak to him. You know, what's kind of begs the question, why did they want to talk to Jesus in the first place? And what did they want to talk to him about? You know, it's fortunate we have four Gospels, because often all four Gospels have the same story, but some of them give us extra information. And Mark's Gospel gives us a lot of extra information. In fact, Mark's Gospel tells us that his family went to Jesus to take charge of him. In other words, take control of him, because they said he is out of his mind. Yes, they had thought Jesus was no longer functioning in reality. So once again, we must ask, why would they think that of Jesus? Hey, was it because he was saying some things about himself that a mere man should never say? For example, before Abraham was, I am. And I could just hear his brothers. Jesus, you're only a few years older than we are. We know you're our oldest brother, but you didn't exist before Abraham. And what about this one? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. Once again, I could hear his brothers. We know you are an outstanding big brother. And of course, he must have been because he never sinned. But now you're telling us you're the light of the world? And what about this one? Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That's quite a claim. And what about this one? Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. <laughs> you could hear his brothers. Jesus, you're elevating yourself above other families? How can you do that? And then finally, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one will come to the Father but by me. Yes, mere men should never say such things. But you see, Jesus was no mere man. And of course, Matthew's gospel starts out by telling us that Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. But you see, at this point in time, his brothers, yes, James, you ever get the idea that Mary and Joseph loved Jay for a start of a name? It was James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. You see, they had not yet come to faith. They did not understand who Jesus really was. In fact, John's gospel says this about his brothers. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. At this point in time, they didn't understand that he was the Messiah, the Christ, the coming king. They could only think of Jesus as their older brother, 
Yes, a very good older brother. Yes, their older brother who worked as a carpenter in the town of Nazareth. And such a person should not be saying such things about himself. Furthermore, I ask, did they come to see him that day to take charge of him, to save his very life? You see, I'm sure they knew that Jesus was really upsetting the religious leaders. And maybe they had even heard word that these religious leaders were out to get him. And so they went to take charge of him to save his very life. And what about Mary? Why was Mary with the brothers? Did she have the same doubts and concerns as her other sons? You know, I'm not so sure she did. And I say that because Mary had received some unbelievable revelations about who her son was. Do you remember before Jesus was born, the angel Gabriel came to her? And what did the angel tell her? Wow, first of all, you're going to have a son in a supernatural way. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you'll, have, you'll conceive a child in your womb. And in fact, he's going to be called the Son of God. He's going to save their people from their sins, and he's going to be a king who's going to reign on David's throne forever and ever. And that fulfills an Old Testament prophecy that someone born into David's line would eventually be king and rule forever and ever. Now, of course, we have no way of knowing what was going on in Mary's mind at that moment. But we do know this. We know that she was with her four brothers, or I mean her four other sons, and I wonder if she was almost there to keep them in, in line. <laughs> Anyways, and we also know that she couldn't see Jesus at that moment because of the crowds. So someone, some unnamed person, makes their way through the crowd and goes finds Jesus and says, hey, your mother and your brothers are outside and they want to speak to you. Jesus, however, ignores the request made by his family and then uses it to ask a question that would give him an opportunity to teach people of all time a very important lesson. The question he asks is rather an obvious question. Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And the obvious answer was, well, it's Mary, that great young lady Mary, and my brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. But that's not how Jesus answered the question. In the words of Jesus, verse 49 and 50, we read, pointing to his disciples, he said, here, here, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. In other words, those who are his followers are his truest family. His disciples are his truest family. Those who, more specifically, those who are about his Father's will are his nearest and dearest. Friends, Jesus spent his time on earth. And in fact, it's, we're repeated this. This is a theme that runs through John's gospel. He spent his entire life doing his father's will. In fact, we read in John's gospel this verse, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. 
And Jesus expects his followers to be on the same page as he is. And his mission becomes our mission. We are here today to do our Father's will. No, no, most certainly, not to be understood here, Jesus loved his family. If he didn't sin, that means he was the perfect child. Must have been a little tough for his siblings, eh? The child who never did anything wrong. And we know he taught later, and we're going to see that in chapter 15. He told us to keep on honoring our father and mother. You know, it occurred to me the other day, even when your parents are no longer here, you can still honor them by doing the things they really want you to do. You know what parents want more than anything? They want siblings to love each other, to care for each other. And friends, we even know that when he was on the cross dying, he looks down and tells another disciple, take care of my mom. Take care of my mom. Yes, loving one's family and loyalty to Jesus and his mission are not incompatible activities. But Jesus' disciples have a special place in his heart because they are the ones who are committed to joining him on mission in doing his Father's will. So I ask, what is God's will for us here today? In my understanding, our Father's will begins. Our Father's will begins with rightly responding to Jesus. As we read in John's Gospel, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. Over and over again in John's Gospel, we are invited to place our faith in Jesus Christ. We're invited to believe in him. Yes, to place our trust in him. And it's the only requirement, absolutely the only requirement that is asked of us to experience the gift of eternal life. Eternal life is absolutely a free gift to those who would depend on Jesus rather than themselves. And that's where repentance comes in. When we changed our attitude towards Jesus, realizing that we truly, truly need him. Yes, it's a free gift to those who would believe that Jesus came into the world to die for their sins so that we could experience God's forgiveness and to be reconciled to him forevermore. I have to conclude, and I'm sure you have as well, that God truly wants us to enjoy him today, right in this moment, and then to live with him and enjoy him forevermore. That is the grand message, I think, of the Bible, if not John's gospel. Friends, God's will for us begins with rightly responding to Jesus as our Savior. Secondly, it's also the Father's will that we listen, that we listen carefully to Jesus. In Mark 9, 7, we read these words. And this is our heavenly It's good to have two guns. <laughs> this is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Listen to him. 
And the father said that in the presence of three of Christ's disciples, plus some legendary Old Testament heroes. Yes, listen to everything he has taught us so you can put his teachings into practice. So specifically, what are Christ's teachings that he really wants us to major in on? Here's a small sample. And you guys know this. Love one another. No, really love one another. And even extend that to the people who annoy you, who upset you. And in fact, love your enemies. Forgive. (laughs) Well, what a great list, eh? Those two. If we just did those two, forgive those who offend us. And serve others. And show mercy. Have you noticed this theme that's emerging in Matthew's gospel where Jesus keeps saying, it's better to show mercy than offer all these Old Testament sacrifices? Gary Beharrell sent me an interesting article this week on what it means to show mercy. (laughs) I encourage you to read it. I'll give you the link. And then the golden rule, do to others as you'd have them do to you. Wow, what a great relational principle. I don't know if there's a greater relational principle than that one. And then make disciples. Yes, make disciples who learn to obey everything I taught you. And then be givers. And this is just a small sampling, but... Nevertheless, a significant sample of what Jesus is asking for us to do today. This is our Father's will for us. And then what do you think about the rest of the Bible? There's just so many things that we're invited to do by our Father. For example, rule over God's good creation. Whatever talents, whatever your occupation is, you are helping people to flourish If you're out driving a truck, bringing food to people, you are helping people to live. Whatever it is, that command has never gone away. It's right there in Genesis chapter 2. Take a day off. We need to take that serious. Take a day off. Rest. Encourage people. Use your spiritual gift. Pray and give thanks. Anytime you need to apologize, do it quickly. Share with those in need. And so much more could be said. For when we read the Bible, friends, we're given God's will, the Father's will. We discovered it in great, great detail. And in today's passage, Jesus is telling us, friends, that those who do these things, yes, the things that reflect the Father's will for us, are in fact part of his true, true family. But I must make this abundantly clear. We do not do the will of our Father in heaven to become part of Christ's true family. Rather, we do our Father's will because we have experienced God's grace as shown to us in Christ. I I want to repeat that because I do not want to be misunderstood here this morning. We do not do the will of our Father in heaven to become part of God's family. Rather, we do our Father's will because we've experienced God's grace as shown to us in Christ. In other words, salvation by grace comes first, followed by a life of discipleship where we seek to do the Father's will. Paul the Apostle said it well in his New Testament letter to the church in Ephesus when he says this. This will get the right sequencing for us. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, 
so that no one here this morning or in this whole planet could ever boast. But now listen to what Paul says about those who experience God's grace. Verse 10, For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Yes, by grace, through faith in Christ, we are saved from sin. And as well, we are made spiritually alive, causing us to want to do works, good works, causing us to become a disciple of Jesus, causing us to live for our Father's will. Discipleship to Jesus is always a response to what God has done for us in Christ. Hey, possibly this chart by Charles Bing, taken from his book, Simply Grace will help you as much as it helped me to make this distinction or to see the distinction between salvation and discipleship. Here's the chart. Salvation. It's a free gift. It's by grace. If salvation, if you have to earn it in any way, it becomes no longer grace. Discipleship, on the other hand, is rather costly. Take up your cross. Salvation is received through faith. Discipleship, on the other hand, requires commitment. And by the way, this chart is in your handout this morning as well. Salvation does not involve our works. Discipleship, boy, it involves our works. Salvation, instant justification. Let me just briefly explain that term. This is that revolutionary New Testament concept that the Reformation was all about 500 years ago. When we place our faith in Christ, we are declared righteous in God's holy court. Our position is one of righteousness because Christ gives us his righteousness and we give Christ our sin. Now, experientially, we're still struggling with sin, but our status, our position in Christ is that of one who is righteous. But we also know that discipleship is a lifelong process. And, and, and a process that can be real disappointing. I think we all know something about disappointment in our own spiritual journey. But that's where discipleship's all about. It's a lifelong process. Hey, salvation, Jesus paid the price. We can't. Only Christ could. Discipleship, well, the Christians will often pay the price, as we're hearing about more and more often. Christians are paying the price worldwide. Their churches are being burned down, not to mention what that horrific shooting in Sri Lanka. His salvation is coming to Jesus as Savior. Discipleship is coming to Jesus as Lord. Salvation is an A truth. And discipleship is a B-truth, not in regards to importance, but in regards to sequence. Salvation comes first, discipleship follows. Bing concludes, it should be apparent that discipleship is distinct from salvation, but I would add, and I believe Bing would agree, salvation naturally leads to discipleship because genuine faith in Christ it's a relationship, and a relationship with Jesus will always change you. Furthermore, I think it's important to say that discipleship 
is also fueled by grace, by God's enabling presence. It's not like you become a, a, a Christian by grace and all of a sudden discipleship, well, now you're on your own. No, no, no. As Paul writes in his New Testament letter to the church in Philippi, I can do everything, that is, everything he's calling you to do, through him who gives me strength. And earlier in the letter, he says this, and this is one of my favorite verses because through the course of our day, we should always be experiencing that God is working in us. And at an early morning prayer meeting of the day, I just really was praying this, that you would sense that what is God doing in your heart even now? Paul writes, it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Wow. So although a life of discipleship involves effort, commitment, and often great cost, it is still fueled by God's grace, which Pastor Dave always likes to defined as God's enabling presence. Yes, salvation comes first, but real faith in the person of Jesus Christ will ultimately lead, or should always lead, to a life of discipleship. Oh, and by the way, Jesus' brothers, whatever happened to those four characters? There's this one little verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5, that tells us that they eventually came to faith in Big Brother now no longer just as big brother, but as their Lord and their Savior. And they went out with their wives and were on missionary work. Let me conclude. Do you live for the will of your Father in heaven? Now that's, that's a big question, isn't it? And I'm not saying perfectly because we all know that perfection is not to be had this side of eternity. But are you seeking to understand what God's will is so that you can do it? Is that one of the passions of your heart? You know, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is, what the Father's will is. Yes, so you can obey it. Friends, if you can say in your heart, you know, I really want to do my Father's will, you should have the confidence. That's a great sign that you're part of Jesus his family, that you're spiritually alive in Christ. Just to have that desire, I want to do what the Father wants me to do. Said another way, doing your Father's will will clearly identify you as part of Christ's family. In the words of Jesus himself, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother, is my mother, my brother, and my sister. Yes, those who do the Father's will are Christ's true family.